Well, thank you, kids. One of my favorite verses to do along with neighboring that I have written on my office and a lot of places is Romans, I think it's 15.2, and it says, do good for your neighbors for their own good. It's a great reminder to how to love somebody as ourselves. Well, welcome. We are glad you are with us here this morning. We are excited that you are here. If this is your first time with us, or one of your first times, welcome. We are glad you're here. We are excited you're here. Please stop at the welcome desk, pick up a mug. It'll tell you a little bit about our story, and we look forward to getting to know some of your story as well. As many of you know, we've been in this series on Revelation. We've been in a series looking at the various parts of John's vision. We've been looking at the letters to the churches, and we are almost done with that series. We're getting up against the end now, and it's been a multiple week through Revelation that we've entitled Strength and Hope. Revelation is home to a lot of crazy symbolism and even at times confusing mystery. However, we've been learning that Revelation, like all divine revelations in the Bible, is a process used by God to reveal knowledge about himself, his will, his heart, and ultimately his divine compassion for mankind. This morning we continue in Revelation, and and as we continue through it, I truly hope and pray that you learn something about the ways God reveals himself and his kingdom, and in it I hope you find a renewed sense of strength and hope in God and in our citizenship in the kingdom of God. In 1972, Larry Norman, who was a very broken man, but also a singer and songwriter that became one of the most pivotal musician voices in what was called the Jesus People Movement, released an album called Only Visiting This Planet. Has anyone heard of this album? I have it on vinyl. Does anyone have it on vinyl? A couple people are laughing. On this album, Only Visiting the Planet, as evident from the title, Larry began to record a set of songs wrestling with the tension of what it means to follow Jesus and have our citizenship in the kingdom of God, but to live as an orphan in a world in which we do not have citizenship, a world that is not our own. One of the songs in which he wrote on that album was called The Great American Novel. The Great American Novel is a term that was used throughout the 60s and the 70s to describe an era in time in which an expert writes a story about or writes the narrative of. This, I'm going to read to you what Larry wrote and in his song, The Great American Novel, a song looking at his citizenship in heaven by pointing out the inconsistencies he was seeing in the American or kingdom of the world during his time in the 70s. He, re- he wrote, I was born and raised an orphan in a land that once was free, in a land that poured its love out on the moon. And I grew up in the shadows of your silos filled with grain, but you never helped to fill my empty spoon. And when I was 10, you mur- murdered law with courtroom politics, and you learned how to make a lie sound just like truth. But I know you better now, and I don't fall for all your tricks, and you've lost the one advantage of my youth. And your money says, in God we trust, but it's against the law to pray in school. You say we've beat the Russians to the moon, and I say you starved your children to do it. 
You are far across the ocean in a war that is not your own. And while you're winning theirs, you're going to lose the one at home. Do you really think the only way to bring about peace is to sacrifice your children and kill off your enemies? The politicians all make speeches while the newsmen take note, and they exaggerate the issues as they shove them down our throats. Is it really up to them whether this country sinks or swims? Well, I wonder who will lead us if none of us would vote. Well, my phone is tapped and my lips are chapped from whispering through the fence. You know every move I make, or is that just coincidence? Well, you try to make my way of life a little less like jail if I promise to make tapes and slides and send them through the mail. And he repeats himself, and your money says in God we trust, but it's against the law to pray in school. You say we've beat the Russians to the moon, and I say you've starved your children to do it. You say all men are equal, all men are brothers. Then why are the rich more equal than others? Don't ask me for the answer, I've only got one. That a man leaves his darkness when he follows the sun. This morning, as we continue our Revelation series, I think we are going to see a chapter that causes us to wrestle with the inconsistencies of being a citizen in the kingdom of God and being present in a world that is not our own. I'm sure as I read through those lyrics, there were lines that grabbed you that said, that wasn't only evident in the 1970s, but they are real things today. Things that we deal with, polarizations that are happening in our society that are an everyday occurrence. The media exaggerating issues, right? That was one of those things. This morning, we're going to look at Revelations 18, 1 through 10. Through this passage in Revelation, we, like Larry Norman, are going to need to wrestle with the reality that we are only visiting this planet. That we, too, were born and raised in an orphan in a land that we do not have citizenship. John's vision in Revelation 18 will reinforce that Christians who have our citizenship in the kingdom of God must carefully watch and take note to how we align with the broken world in which we live around us. John's vision has implications for what might be called the great American novel, telling a story that may await our country as it does all imperialistic world powers. You can follow along with me in your Bible, or if you have the Red Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find Revelation 18, 1 through 10 on page 1227, I believe. And you'll also be able to follow along with me on the screen as I read from there. After this, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries, the kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. But then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, 
so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief and glory and luxury as she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who had committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and they will mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. So what notes can we take away from Revelation 18? When you came in, you should have received a bulletin in there. You'll see some places to fill in blanks and just to follow along as we look at some things that we are going to draw out of this passage this morning. If you have time this week, I encourage you to read Revelation 18. It goes on for some time. The second voice goes on uh, explaining much more of the punishment and the consequences that await the empire of Babylon. One of the first things I want to draw a conclusion to before we get into the notes is this. The vision was delivered by an angel, John says, with great authority. He makes that distinction right off the bat. It's not just any angel. This angel came down with great authority. And in addition to that, so much so that we saw that when he comes to the earth, that he actually illuminates the earth. The earth just glows with the presence of this great angel. Why is that important? Well, one of the reasons is the word used there to describe the way that he illuminated the city with his splendor is the same word that we find used to talk about the presence of God in the temple. It's an amazing contrast between the evil of Babylon and this temple-like presence of God that comes down. He isn't only radiant and with authority, but he's also shouting, it says. We can't help but wonder what John was thinking as he's trying to scribe this, this passage and he sees this angel with great authority lighting up a dark city and he's just shouting, right? Like, how do you quickly follow a guy who's always shouting? It's important to notice the contrast because in art and literature, perspective and angles say everything. The city and empire's perspective is one that is dark, it's evil, and it's fallen. When the angel comes, it becomes illuminated with light. It's a light, a night and day difference. First thing that we see out of this passage is this. That it speaks, it's, John's vision is one that speaks of a great despair that devastated an empire. John's vision is one that speaks of great despair that devastated an empire. We see this as John writes that the mighty, the mighty angel cries out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
This is a city that is empire. It's a city that is huge. It is a city that controls the world. It is a great city. It's not any city. It's a great city. Referring to Babylon as the great shows its power. Babylon was a world power in the days past. It was considered an empire. This vision is full of warnings that will show the devastation of that empire. Some which continue, as I said later on in Revelation 18. Including sailors who sit and mourn as they see their livelihood demolished before them. As they, as they mourn and say, we got rich off that and now they will not buy our goods. This is an empire we see from the very beginning that is not painted in a good light. The readers of John's words would have assumed Rome was Babylon in his vision. Over the years, there's been lots of biblical theologians and commentators that would have loved to dissect and explain this passage, and they've done so by assigning various countries and cultures to the city mentioned in this passage, Babylon. The readers of John's words have assumed Rome, the readers of John's words would have assumed at their time that Rome was the Babylon that we see present in this vision. This city in which controls the world, they would have assumed is definitely, has to be, no way can be anything else but Rome. Why? Rome had hit empirical status. It had controlled the world's trade, economy, and culture of the world at the time. Rome was so big that no one could imagine that one day it would fall. It had pride. They did not mourn over losing things. They were a strong country. They were a strong force in the world. Rome was full of everything considered unclean. It was ruled by corruption and an oppressive force. People were not citizens but slaves to its system. Rome would help other countries, they would aid other countries, or sometimes Rome would take them by force. And as they did that, they would put outposts and governments into play, and then Rome would control this across the world, in the places that they saw best. Smart merchants knew how to play the system, and they would move into these areas, or or find a void in these areas, and they would get rich off selling things to people in need. They would, they would move around under the dictatorship and become rich off the exploits of the system's voids. This passage echoes that reality when it reads, for all of the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. For John's early readers, it would have been easy to assign Rome to this revelation. Every nation was either resisting or falling under Rome's advances. Every powerful king and nation was either making war or pact with Rome. Merchants knew how to exploit the system and to get rich off it. During the Reformation, many other famous reformers who I will not mention this morning, many of even who we sing their songs, also assigned Rome to this force. Not only because Rome had taken over the world by force, but now it had also become the center of Christianity. The Catholic Church and the rule of the papacy had become a worldwide phenomenon, and Rome was central to all of it. So many of the early reformers automatically read this passage and assumed there's no way that Babylon the Great is anything but Rome. Through the Crusades, the Roman Catholic Church had seemingly mirrored Rome's governmental 
and political story that was slowly bringing under everyone into its control, despite the many deep schemes, inconsistencies, and trespasses that were at work in the church system at the time. This is why the reformers read that Babylon could only be, could not be anything else but Rome. The important part to remember this morning is regardless if we see Babylon as Rome or not, we must attentively heed the warnings that have befallen this empire. Regardless if we see Babylon as Rome or not, we must attentively heed the warnings that have befallen this empire. The word empire, if you would look it up in a dictionary, it has many different things that break it down. This is one of the the definitions that I found. It says, an aggregate of nations or people ruled by an emperor or another powerful government that has supreme power in governing, imperial power, sovereignty, supreme control, and absolute sway. There have been many empires like Rome that could have fit John's vision. The British Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the the Genghis Khan years of Asia. We had the French Empire. We've had the Russian Empire. And by the definition of this right here, we could even call it the American Empire would fit this description to a T. Interesting enough, imperialism is another word that has become closely associated and definitive of what an empire is. The term American imperialism has come to describe the economic, military, and cultural influence that the United States has on other countries. Remember how I talked about how Rome would put their outposts around, and they would help countries, and they would put an outpost out there, and that was how they would take over the world? What you see on the map here is places that the United States has done the same empirical move that we have put bases in countries and territories that are not our own. Such an influence of an empire or an imperialistic nation is closely associated with a nation's ability to expand into foreign territories. The concept of an American empire was first popularized by the President James K. Polk, who led the United States into the Mexican-American War of 1846 and eventually into the annexation of California and other Western territories. Empires are world powers, is what he said. World power being a word used to describe America first in 1901 in the Puck magazine, it has also become a word America has used to describe herself after the Spanish-American War. The map shows, as I said, the countries in which we have become a world player. In John's letter, Regardless of what we see Babylon as, we must be aware of what spirit is behind all imperialistic world powers. Because there are many empires like what John saw. There are many trespasses that are present in each of these imperialistic world powers. The important reality is that we must stop and as citizens of the kingdom of God, not get caught up in them, but be aware of what spirit is controlling them and behind them at all times. The verse that gripped me the most in this passage, and maybe it's the one that grabbed you the most too, is Revelation 18.4. 
And then I heard another voice of heaven say, Come out of her, her Babylon, the empire, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crime. John's words ring with hope and strength to us as citizens of the kingdom of God. A characteristic of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God is to be present in a world but not take ownership, to be orphans in a world that is not our own. Come out of that imperialistic, empirical world power, my people, so you will not share in her wrongdoings, so you will not receive any of her consequences, for her wrongs are piled and they can be seen from heaven. And God will remember these things. This is what we see happening in this story. In fact, Revelation, though it's in the last of our book, is not the last book that John wrote. John went on to write some letters to his church plants. They were called 1 John, 2 John, right? So in 1 John 5, 19, John continues to address the issue of this governmental system. And he says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So we've said we must be careful what spirit is behind imperialistic world powers. At the end of the day, John tells us what spirit that is. It is not the Holy Spirit. We know that we are children of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And the whole world is under the control of the evil one. As a result, we as followers of Jesus must say that our citizenship can only belong to the kingdom of God. And we must be careful where that aligns. As I said, John in his passage teaches us to be aware of what spirit is behind these powers and it affects the way that we then will need to live. As followers of Jesus, it is important. Again, as followers of Jesus, we must realize that our reality is divided between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. This was a huge debate during the, the Reformation, even as the Anabaptist people, can a person have dual citizenship? Can, is a person, uh, can a person uh, do this? Blah, blah, blah. Can we land with our, our head in the clouds and our feet on the earth? At the end of the day, as followers of Jesus, we must realize that our, result, that our reality is divided, but we can only belong to one. The tension in which we feel is the realization that our citizenship, yes, belongs to the kingdom of God. God is in control. God is all-powerful. But we see John's call to come out of the one for the sake of the other. Paul writes of this hope and strength of God's reigning power to his church plant in Ephesus. Now, he's far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ, and he has made him over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is a body, and it's made full and complete by Christ, who fills things everywhere with himself. We have tension because we know God reigns above all else. He reigns in this world and the one to come, but at the same time, we look around, and like the Larry Norman song that I read is, we see that it is evident that sin and brokenness and disease are not eradicated from this world. They have not been removed yet, erased, conquered, and we, we live in this tension of that. This is the tension of the kingdom that is both here and now and yet to come. 
This reality is not only urged by John and Paul, but it's also done by Peter as he wrote to his church plant in 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, he says, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from the worldly desires that rage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your own believing neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. We constantly run into this realization that the kingdom of God, the one that holds our citizenship, calls us to come out of the world's kingdom and to live as foreigners and strangers, to mirror Jesus who lived as a refugee without a place to even lay his head. We must be careful and watch our citizenship then with conviction and awareness. If our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, we must carefully watch it with awareness. We need to heed the call to come out and not get caught up. Again, it is our call to be called out and not caught up. Albert Speer was caught up. Albert Speer was the chief architect of the Nazi party. He worked directly with Hitler. And at the end of World War II, when he was interviewed, he said this quote, one seldom recognizes the devil when he's putting his hand on your shoulder. John's words are to come out of the world, to make sure that the devil hasn't placed a hand on our shoulder. And maybe the devil's hand isn't on our shoulders, but in our political polarizations, our debates on Facebook. Maybe it's our secrets and our thoughts, or our judgments of others, or what we do in our free time, or the way we spend our family life. Maybe it's the, our way of living that exploits something that mirrors the merchants of Babylon. What is it that we've allowed of this world to be too much into our world? Because folks, whether Rome is Babylon or not, the imperialistic world power is controlled by Satan and it's going to fall and we do not want to be caught up in its place. So our challenge this morning is to let's come out from under influence of the imperialistic world power in which we reside. Let us not get caught up in the day-to-day -day life of whatever it is that seems to distract us, the way that media controls us, the way that we allow ourselves to be politically charged about an issue, and as a result, we demonize others, or we debate with others, or we look to debate, because these things, folks, are not of the kingdom of God. And at all costs, we must avoid them and look to see our citizenship nowhere but the kingdom of God so that we can be part of the instruments that war against the kingdom that will fall. God is constantly at war and empowers his church to be at war. He, Paul calls us to be soldiers, to, to see ourselves on the front lines of a battle that rages, one of the advancing kingdom of God into an empire that will fall. We must watch our citizenship. I encourage you as you, as you go out this week and as the, as the worship band uh, comes back to lead us in a closing song, I encourage you to, to merely be alert at where you find yourselves getting caught up in the ways of the world and not focused on God. Because the way the things are going to work out for the world are not so good. And we don't want to share in this place where vultures look to exploit and eat dying and dead things as the passage said. Be careful of where you find the devil's hand on your shoulder.